Thank you very much, Rabbi Silver. It's a great pleasure to be back at Drisha, uh, where the last time I was here for a couple of lectures, the conversations after the lecture were as rich and as interesting to me as any conversations I've had lecturing anywhere. So I'm um, glad that you're here this evening, uh, glad that I'm here this evening, and look forward to some conversation after I'm finished. The title of the lecture, The Ten Commandments, Principles of a Humanistic Politics. Can I be heard in the back? Good. Uh, the book of Exodus provides an account of the national founding of the Israelite people. Genesis had presented the story of how God's new way for humankind found its first adherent in Abraham, a man out of Mesopotamia, and how that way survived through three generations in the troubled households of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, the children of Israel are settled in Egypt, land of good and plenty, where they are soon teeming and prosperous, only soon after to be enslaved. How this multitude becomes a people out of and against Egypt is the subject of Exodus and the following books. The central event in their transformation is the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. <clears throat> the Ten Commandments pronounced by the Lord God to the recently liberated children of Israel assembled at Sinai constitute the most famous teaching of the book of Exodus, perhaps of the entire Tanakh. Prescribing proper conduct toward God and man the Decalogue embodies the core principles of the Israelite way of life and later of what would become known as the Judeo-Christian ethic. Even in our increasingly secular age, its influence on the prevailing morality of the West is enormous, albeit not always acknowledged or welcomed. Yet despite its notoriety, the Decalogue is still only superficially known in part because its very familiarity interferes with a deeper understanding of its teachings and its moral political significance. This lecture aspires to such an understanding, informed by the belief that, if rightly understood, the Decalogue would command universal applause, not only for its opposition to murder, adultery, and theft, but as the true foundation of a just and humanistic politics. Part one of six, and you have a handout with two sides. Uh, the first side has the six parts of the lecture and the relevant passages, and the back are some supplementary passages for parts four and five. Part one is called Structure and Context. We can begin by correcting some widespread misimpressions, starting with the name Ten Commandments. Although most of the statements appear in the imperative mode, they are not called commandments, mitzvot, but rather words or statements, and God spoke all these words. True, later in the Bible we will hear about the ten words, the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek dekalogoi or decalogue, but the reference there is far from clear. No help is provided by counting. Traditional exegetes derive as many as 13 commands from God's speech in Exodus 20, and because the internal divisions of the statements are unclear, those who get them down to ten disagree on how to reckon them. Furthermore, no mention is made of the famous tablets of stone on which, in traditional imagery, we see the Decalogue inscribed five commandments on each. When such tablets are mentioned later on, we are not told what's written on them. Is it the Decalogue, the ordinances that follow, or the instructions to build the tabernacle? What then do we know about the structure of these pronouncements? 
One group of them touches mainly on the relation between God and the individual Israelite. The first words spoken are, I, the Lord, am your God. And within this group, we hear the phrase, the Lord your God, four more times. The second group, beginning with thou shalt not murder, touches primarily on conduct between and among human beings. In this section, God is not mentioned. And the very last word of the Decalogue, a far distance from the opening, I, thy, I the Lord, is your neighbor. Next, nearly all of the statements are put in the negative. The first few statements prescribe wrongful ways of relating to the divine. No other gods, no images, no vain use of the divine name. While the last six begin with low, not. Human beings, it seems, are more in need of restraint than of encouragement. In this sea of prohibition, two positive exhortations stand out. The one about hallowing the Sabbath and the one about honoring father and mother. Hallowing the Sabbath is also one of the two injunctions that receive the longest exposition or explanation, the other being that concerning images and likenesses. Clearly, these three deserve special attention. But far more than the, important than the structural features is the context into which the Decalogue fits. The new people-forming covenant between the Lord and Israel proposed by God through his prophet Moses to the children of Israel in the immediately antecedent chapter of Exodus 9, 5, and 6. I remind you of the overall terms of the agreement, which are succinctly stated. If the children of Israel, A, will hearken unto my voice, and B, keep my covenant, then as a consequence, A, ye shall be my own treasure from among all peoples, and B, ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. It is only here, with the offer of a divine covenant, that this motley multitude of ex-slaves learns from the first time that they can become a people among the other peoples of the earth, and that they can become a special people, a treasure unto the Lord. Moreover, their special place is defined in more than political terms. They are invited to become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is a matter to which we will return. True, the Decalogue is hardly the bulk of the people-forming legislation or the code of holiness. All the laws specifying proper conduct and religious observance come in the sequel. First in the ordinances, the Mishpatim, then in the laws regarding the building of the tabernacle, and then in Leviticus in the laws governing sacrifices and the so-called holiness code. So the Decalogue functions rather like a prologue or preamble to the constituting law. Like the preamble to the Constitution of the United States, it enunciates the general principles on which the New Covenant will be founded. Principles that in this case touch upon and connect the relation both between man and God and between man and man. The Decalogue is less a founding legal code more an orienting, aspirational guide for every Israelite and perhaps every human heart and mind. Part 2, I and Thou. The Decalogue is introduced as follows. I quote, And God spoke all these words, saying, Unlike most such biblical statements reporting a divine act of speaking, this one does not identify the audience to whom God spoke. But the omission is fitting, 
for the speech appears to be addressed simultaneously to all the assembled people and to each one individually. In fact, all the injunctions are given in second person singular. Moreover, although pronounced at a particular time and place and uttered in the presence of a particular group of people, the content of the speech is not parochial. It is rather addressed to anyone and everyone who is open to hearing it, including, of course, us vicarious auditors who can read the text and ponder what it teaches. If the identity of the auditor is unspecified, that of the speaker is plain. Quote, I, the Lord, am thy God, who brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Unquote. Later Jewish, but not Christian tradition, will treat this clause as part of the first commandment and the basis of the first positive precept, to believe in the existence of the one God. But in context here in Exodus 20, the statement functions rather to announce the identity of the speaker, who, as would have been customary in any such proposed covenant between a suzerain and his vassals, declares the ruler-subject relationship that governs everything that follows. On this understanding, I, the Lord, am thy God, emphasizes that the speaker is the individual hearer's personal God, not just the deity of this locale capable of making the mountain tremble, rumble, and roar, but the very one who brought you personally out of your servitude in Egypt. Nor, unlike God's self-identification to Moses at the burning bush, is there any mention here of the patriarchs. The agreement offered to the Israelites is a covenant not with the God of their long-dead fathers, but with the God of their own recent deliverance. The former covenant with the patriarchs was for fertility, multiplicity, and a promised land. The new one concerns peoplehood, self-rule, and the goals of righteousness and holiness. It rests on a new foundation, and it is made not with a select few, but with the universal many. <clears throat> Although the foundation for the new relationship is historical, rooted in God's deliverance of the Israelites from Egyptian bondage, the Lord's opening declaration also conveys a philosophical message. The Lord appears to be suggesting that for the children of Israel, if not also for unnamed auditors, there are basically two great alternatives in life. Either to be in relation to the Lord, in whose image humankind was created, or to be a slave to Pharaoh, a human king who rules as if he were himself divine. Egypt, identified redundantly as the house of bondage, is presented here not just as one alternative among many, but as the alternative to living as men and women whose freedom from bondage not only to Pharaoh, but also to their own worst tendencies, seems to depend on embracing the covenant with the Lord. And this we could perhaps discuss. I'm, I want to suggest there's a universal teaching and not just a teaching for Israel. There really are two great alternatives. Either be in relation to God or be prepared to be a slave, not only to Pharaoh, but to your own worst appetites. Part three is called Man Seeking God, Three Common Errors. After the opening remark declaring God's relation to this people, the next statements concern how God wants them to conduct their side of the relationship. Surprisingly, the instruction is entirely negative. The first wrong way is this, quote, 
Thou shalt not have other or strange gods before me. This is not a theoretical declaration of monotheism simply, but of cultural monotheism. What is claimed precisely is an exclusive, intimate, I-thou relationship like that of a marriage, requiring unqualified fidelity and brooking no other that comes between the two partners. You shall look to no stranger gods in my presence. No other gods shall come between us. Having established the principle of exclusivity, God speaks next to correct the natural human inclination to represent the divine in artfully made visible images, and even to worship these statues or likenesses. I quote, Thou shalt not make unto thee a graven image, nor any likeness of anything that is in the heavens above, or that is in the earth below, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down unto them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, remembering the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third or fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing grace, chesed, unto the thousandth generation of them that love me and keep my commandments. Unquote. Intended to proscribe the worship of idols, this injunction builds offense against such practices by forbidding even the making of sculptured images or likenesses, especially of any natural being. It emphatically opposes the practice known from Egypt to the ex-slaves of worshipping natural beings, from dung beetles to the sun to the pharaohs, and representing divinity in sculpted likenesses. But it also seems to preclude any attempt to represent in image or likeness God himself. The overall message is clear. Any being that can be re represented in visual images is not a god. The unstated reason, God is transnatural, incorporeal, and hence unimageable in visual and visible terms. What's wrong with worshipping visible images or the things that they represent? Apart from the mere error of supposing these things divine, perhaps the most important reason is that neither the worship of dumb nature nor the celebration of clever human image makers addresses the twistedness and restlessness that lurk in the human heart and soul. Neither silent nature nor human artfulness teaches anything about righteousness, holiness, or even basic human decency. Indeed, the worship of nature or of idols may contribute to the problem. Making the connection explicit, the Lord vows to visit the iniquities of the fathers and the sons under the third or fourth generation. An iniquity of the Bible differs from a sin, chet. To sin is to miss the mark as an arrow misses the target. By contrast, to commit an iniquity, an iniquity, avon, is to do something twisted or crooked, to be perverse. Sin is not inherited, and only the sinner gets punished. Iniquity, however, like, in, like pollution, lasts and lasts, affecting those that come in its wake. The perversity of what fathers do reverberates through the generations. The Israelites are not yet told what behavior they are to regard as iniquitous. Is it idolatry itself? Or does idolatry lead to such twisted practices as incest, fratricide, bestiality, cannibalism, or slavery? Either way, the fathers and mothers are put on notice. How they stand with respect to divinity will affect their children and their children's children, 
God and the world care about, retain, and perpetuate our iniquities. But not indefinitely. Only to the third or fourth generation. The limits of any father's clearly imaginable future. And overshadowing the perpetuation of iniquity is a promise of God's bountiful grace or chesed to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Just as the sons of iniquitous fathers suffer through no direct fault of their own, so a thousand generations of descendants of a righteous and God-loving ancestor enjoy unmerited grace. And by the way, it has been only 200 generations since Father Abraham, for whose merit we are still being blessed. From this little injunction on idol worship, we learn that God or the world is not indifferent to the conduct of his people or of human beings generally. That the choice seems to be between living in relation to the Lord and worshiping or serving strange gods, between keeping his commandments and living iniquitously. That the choices one makes will have consequences for those who come later. But that the blessings that follow from worthy and God-loving conduct are more far-reaching than are the miseries caused by iniquitous and God-spurning conduct. There will be perversity in every generation, but the world overflows with chesed. This last, indeed, is the most important difference between idols or strange gods and the Lord thy God. Under the rule of no other deity could the world be seen to embody the kind of grace, kindness, and blessing here foretold. The final error to be corrected concerns the use of the divine name. For if visible beings are unworthy of worship, and if conversely the Lord thy God cannot be visibly imagined, imaged, all that remains to us of him when he is silent is his name. Yet it is also not through his name that the Israelites are to enter into a proper relationship with the Lord. Quote, Thou shalt not take up the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold guiltless the one who takes up his name in vain. What exactly is being proscribed? What sort of use of God's name is in vain? The concept embraces not only speaking falsely, but also speaking emptily, frivolously, insincerely. The most likely occasion for such empty evocations of the divine name would be in swearing an oath, calling on God to witness the truth of what one is about to say or the pledge one is promising to fulfill. But the injunction seems to have a larger intention, at least, at the very least, inviting us to ponder what would not be a vain use of the Lord's name. To speak the Lord's name unless instructed to do so is to wrap yourself in the divine mantle to summon God in support of your own purposes. It is to treat God as if he were sitting by the phone waiting to do your bidding. In the guise of beseeching the Lord in his majesty and grace, one behaves as if one were his Lord and master. One behaves, in other words, like Pharaoh. There is a deeper issue, having less to do with misconduct and more with the hazards of speech itself. Treating anyone's name as something that one can take up or lift is to take him up as if by his handle. Like in making images of the divine, trafficking in the divine name evinces a presumption of familiarity and knowledge. 
To handle the name of the Lord risks treating him as a finite thing known through and through. Even if uttered in innocence, the use of the Lord's name invites the all-too-human error that attends all acts of naming, the belief that by naming we thereby know or can grasp the essence. Called by God out of the burning bush, Moses, in the guise of asking what to respond when the Israelites inquire who sent him, seeks to know God's name. The profoundly mysterious non-answer he receives, Echye, Asher, Echye, I will be what I will be, or I am that I am, is in fact a rebuke. The Lord is not to be known or captured in any simple act of naming. The right relation to him is not through naming or knowing his nature, but through hearkening to his words. The right approach is not through philosophy or even theology, through speaking about God, theologos, but through heeding his speech. Yet please notice, up to this point, there has been no positive instruction regarding how one should relate to the divine. What does God want of his people? The next utterance gives the beginning of the answer. Part four, and this is quite a lengthy section because I think it's of central importance, the Sabbath day. Of all the statements in the Decalogue, the one regarding the Sabbath is the most far-reaching and the most significant. It addresses the profound matters of time and its reckoning, work and rest, and man's relation to God, the world, and his fellow men. Most important, this is the only injunction that speaks explicitly of hallowing and holiness. Remember, the special goal for Israel in the covenant that is here being proposed. You all know the relevant text, but I'll read it anyhow. anyhow. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord thy God. Thou shalt do no manner of work, thou, thy son and thy daughter, thy servant and thy maidservant, thy cattle and thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days made the Lord the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day, and therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day, and he hallowed it. The passage opens with a general statement specifying two obligations, to remember in order to sanctify. Next comes an explication of the duty to make holy, comprising a teaching for the six days and a contrasting teaching for the seventh. At the end, we get the reason behind the injunction, a reference to the Lord's six-day creation of the world, his rest on the seventh day, and his consequent doings regarding the seventh day. Imagine ourselves hearing this simple injunction at Sinai. We might find every term puzzling. What is the Sabbath day? What does it mean to remember it? And what is entailed in the charge to keep it holy or to sanctify it? And yet the statement as made seems to imply that the Sabbath day is or should already be known to the Israelites. What in the world might they have understood by it. The word Sabbath comes from a root meaning to cease, to desist from labor, and to rest. Where then have the ex-slaves encountered a day of desisting? Only in their recent experience with the manna. 
After the exodus from Egypt and the deliverance of the Sea of Reeds, the Israelites encounter shortages of food and water and begin to murmur against Moses' leadership. As if he were waiting for such discontent, the Lord intervenes even without being asked. He causes manna to rain from heaven for the people to gather a day's portion every day, not only to tame their hunger, but explicitly, quote, that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or not, unquote, Exodus 16.4. The restrictions placed on their gathering are threefold. Each should gather only what he and his household need and can eat in a day. There is to be no overnight storage or waste. And there is to be no gathering on the seventh day for which a double portion will be provided ahead of time on the sixth. Against the ex-slave's despairing belief that food is preferable to freedom and that serving Pharaoh offered the surest guarantee of life, the children of Israel are taught that, first, they live in a world that can provide for each and every person's needs. But second, the Lord helps those who will help him help themselves. They must work to gather, but what they gather is a gift, and there is no need to hoard against the morrow or to grab all you can in rivalry with your neighbor. In a world beyond scarcity and grasping, the choice is not freedom versus food and drink, but grateful trust versus foolish pride or ignorant despair. Aside from their experience of mana, the Israelites may have had another referent for the Sabbath day. Before the coming of the Bible, many peoples in the ancient Near East already reckoned time in seven-day cycles, connected with the phases of the moon. Their Sabbath, Shabbatu or Shabbatu, was the day of the full moon, the 14th day from the new moon. Above the, among the Babylonians, these seventh days, and especially Shabbatu, the 14th day, the day of the full moon, were fast days, days of ill luck, days on which one avoided pleasure and desisted from important projects out of dread of inhospitable natural powers. Against these naturalistic views, the Sabbath teaching in Exodus institutes a reckoning of time independent of the motion of the heavenly bodies, in which the day for desisting comes always in regular and repeated, repeatable cycles, and it is to be celebrated as a day of joy and benison, not a day of fasting and dread. Readers of Genesis, not the Hebrew slaves, readers of Genesis already know the basis of this way of reckoning time from the story of creation, whose target was precisely these Mesopotamian teachings. But the children of Israel are only now learning that time in the world, and hence their time and their life in the world, will be understood differently from the way other nature-worshipping peoples understand it. The Sabbath day, blessed by the Lord, has existed from time immemorial. But the creation and human-centered view of the world enters human existence only through the covenant here being enacted with the children of Israel. The root meaning of Kadesh, to make holy, is to set apart, to make separate. Other peoples have their own forms of separation or sanctity, sacred places, sacred rituals and practices, sacred persons or animals. But in Israel, what is made holy is not a special object, place or practice, but the time of your life. 
How to make this time holy, we learn in the sequel. But here the Israelite idea of holiness is connected to the distinction between work or labor and rest, as well as the distinction between the things that are yours and the things that belong to God. The six days of work appear to be for yourself and for your own. By contrast, the seventh day is said to be a Sabbath unto the Lord thy God, on which day labor, avodah, for yourself, is to be replaced by avodah to the Lord. Yet the form of devotion is odd. No worship rituals or sacrifices are specified. On the contrary, what is required is merely an absence, a cessation, a desisting. And this obligation to desist falls on the entire household. From master to servant to beast to stranger, the worldly hierarchy is to be set aside. Regardless of rank or station, all are equally invited to participate in the hallowing of the day. Nor do people need to travel or to sacrifice to encounter this sanctified time. Holiness can have a central and ever-renewable place in their ordinary life at home, if they but keep it in mind. And what is the key to the holiness that is the Sabbath's desisting from labor? It is nothing less than God's own doing in connection with creation. Every week, the children of Israel are, as it were, returned to the ultimate beginning and source of the world, summoned to remember and to commemorate its divine creation and creator. But notice, the Israelites are not only recalled to the creation, their own weekly cycle of work and desisting is meant symbolically to reproduce it. Here is the most radical implication of the Sabbath teaching. The Israelites are de facto enjoined to be like God, both in their six days of work and especially on the day of desisting. Note well, their I-Thou relationship to the Creator is no longer based solely in historical time and in their parochial deliverance from Egyptian bondage. It is also ontologically rooted in cosmic time and in the universal human capacity to celebrate the created order and its creator in our special place as its God-like, God-imitating, and God-praising creature. The justification for Sabbath observance here has nothing to do with the exodus from Egypt, but in fact is something that you don't have to be Jewish once you know about it to celebrate. It is, of course, peculiar to order us to rest as God rested, because it is peculiar to speak of God's resting. Nevertheless, something of what this might mean can be hazarded. In the original account of creation, at the end of the sixth day, quote, and this passage is on the back of your sheet, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. But the true completion of creation comes on the seventh day, only after the creative work had ceased. I quote, And the heaven and the earth were finished, and all their host. And God finished on the seventh day his work which he had made, and he desisted on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day, and he hallowed it, because on it he desisted from all his work which God created to make. Here there is no talk of resting, but only of desisting, and on that account of blessing and hallowing, or setting apart the seventh day. A complete world of changeable beings has been brought into being by a divinity who then completes his creative makings 
by standing down. In this mysterious blessing and hallowing of time beyond the world of creative making, God, as it were, makes manifest in the rhythm of the world itself that mysterious aspect of being that is beyond change and motion. Remarkably, this consecration of time and its pointing to something out of time is something that we and only we human beings can glimpse and participate in. It is open to us if and when we set aside our comings and goings and turn our aspirations toward the realm beyond motion from which motion derives and toward which it points and strives. It is open to us when we are moved by wonder and gratitude for the existence of something rather than nothing, for order rather than chaos, and for our unmerited presence in the story. It may seem similarly odd to suggest that human beings would be imitating God by feeling gratitude. Why and for what would God be grateful? Yet gratitude for the created world is not itself part of the created world. Literally a manifestation of grace, it stands us, however briefly, outside the world, beyond the flux of the world's ceaseless motions and changes. Although mobile and perishable beings ourselves, we alone, godlike among the creatures, are capable of standing outside and contemplating the world and feeling gratitude for it and our place in it. In this respect, too, Sabbath remembrance and sanctification permit us to be like God. The existence of Sabbath rest thus offers a partial reprieve from the sentence of unremitting toil and labor prophesied by the Lord at the end of the story of the Garden of Eden, a punishment of the human attempt to become like gods, knowing good and bad, undertaken in an act of disobedience. According to that account, our prideful human penchant for independence, self-sufficiency, and the rule of autonomous human reason led us into a life that ironically would turn out to be nasty, brutish, and short. This is still very much our lot. But here with Sabbath desisting, we are not only permitted, we are in fact obliged regularly to cease the life of toil, sorrow, and loss, and to accept instead the godlike possibility of quiet, rest, wholeness, and peace of mind. And this rise to godlike peace, unlike the self-directed fall into the knowledge of good and bad, depends not on disobedience, but on obedience. The only way a free and reckless creature like man can realize the more than creaturely possibility that was given to him at the creation. It is not only or primarily in imitating God in our workaday labor, but mainly and especially in hearkening to a command to enter into sacred time that we may realize our human yet godlike potential. Doing as I say, teaches the Lord, is the route to doing as I did, or even being a little bit as I am. The Sabbath teaching has other profound implications for human life, including especially for politics. Adherence to the Sabbath injunction turns out to be the foundation of human freedom, political and moral. By inviting and requiring all members of the community to imitate the divine, it teaches the radical equality of human beings, each of whom may be understood to be equally God's creature 
and equally in his image. Sabbath observance thus embodies and fosters the principle of a truly humanistic politics. Although not incompatible with political hierarchy, including kinship, the idea behind the Sabbath renders illegitimate any regime that denies human dignity or that enables one man or some few men to rule despotically as if he or they were divine. And by reconfiguring time, elevating our gaze, and redirecting our aspirations, Sabbath remembrance promotes internal freedom as well by moderating the passions that enslave us from within. Fear and despair, owing to a belief in our lowliness, greed and stinginess, owing to a belief in the world's inhospitality, and pride and hubris, owing to a belief in our superiority and self-sufficiency. The deep connection between the Sabbath and political freedom is supported by the repetition of the Decalogue in Deuteronomy. There the reason given for Sabbath observance rests not on God's creating the world, but on the exodus from Egypt. You have the passage. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God brought thee out thence with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord thy God commanded thee to keep the Sabbath day. In place of the six days of God's creative work contrasted with the seventh day of divine rest and sanctification, the Deuteronomic version contrasts the Israelites' forced labor in Egyptian servitude with the Lord's mighty deliverance. The substitution invites us to see the second justification for Sabbath observance as the logical analog and consequence of the first. In a word, where human beings do not know or acknowledge the bountiful and blessed character of the given world and the special relationship of all human beings to the source of that world and its creator, they will lapse into worship either of powerful but indifferent natural forces or of powerful and clever but amoral human masters and magicians. These seemingly opposite orientations, the worship of brute nature and the veneration of clever men, amount finally to the same thing. Both deny the special godlike standing and holy possibilities of every single human being and of humanity as such. Called upon to remember what it was like to have lived where men knew not the creator in whose image we human beings are made, and called upon to remember the solicitude of the Creator for his suffering people, the Israelites will embrace the teaching about Sabbath observance, and their politics will be humanized and their lives elevated as a result. Excuse me. Part 5, Honoring Father and Mother. The Decalogue moves next to its only other positive injunction, which is also the first to prescribe duties toward human beings, and the last to mention the Lord thy God. Standing as a bridge between the two orders of duty, to God and to one's fellow men, it also invites us to consider what the one has to do with the other. Honor thy father and mother, so that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. As the children of the civilization informed by the Bible, we take for granted that the duty of honor is owed to both father and mother, and equally so. 
Yet this obligation is almost certainly an Israelite innovation. Against the cultural background giving pride of place to manly males and naming children only through their patronyms, the Decalogue trumpets a principle that regards father and mother equally. Also, well before there is any explicit Israelite law regarding marriage, this singling out of one father and one mother heralds the coming Israelite devotion to monogamous union with clear lines of ancestry and descent and an understanding of marriage as devoted to offspring and transmission. Moreover, the principle is stated unconditionally. God does not say, honor your father and mother if they are honorable. He says, honor them regardless. We will soon consider why. As children of the civilization informed by the Bible, we probably also take for granted that our parents should be singled out for special recognition. But this too is hardly the natural way of the world. Not only is the natural family the nursery of rivalry and iniquity, even to the point of patricide and incest, but honor in most societies is usually reserved not for mom and dad, but for people out of the ordinary, for heroes, rulers, and leaders who go, as it were, in the place of God. Not Moses, our teacher, but father and mother, we are instructed to honor. Calling for the honor of father and mother is thus another radical innovation, a rebuke at once to the ways of other cultures, to the natural human and especially male tendency to elevate heroes and leaders, and the correlative quest for honor and glory in defiance of human finitude. In place of honoring the high and the mighty, the way of the Lord calls for honoring everyone, his father and mother, in the service of elevating what they alone care for and do, the work of perpetuation. And by elevating equally the standing of both, each child also learns in advance to esteem his or her spouse, as well as their joint task as transmitters of life and a way of living in which perpetuation itself is most highly honored. The Israelites will shortly be told more about what it means not to honor father or mother and how seriously this failure is regarded. In the ordinances following the Decalogue, two of the four capital offenses, on a par with premeditated murder and kidnapping for slave trading, are striking one's father and mother or cursing one's father or mother. But exactly what it means positively to honor is unspecified, and perhaps for good reason. By not reducing that obligation to specific deeds or speeches, the injunction compels each son or daughter to be ever attentive to what honoring father and mother might require here and now. What the Decalogue is teaching here is a settled attitude of mind and soul. Consider with me two alternative terms that might have been used to describe what children owe their parents, love and obedience. One can love or admire without honoring, and conversely, one can honor even without loving or admiring. Yet for the Israelite, the duty to honor parents persists even if love is absent. As for obedience, the duty to honor father and mother extends long beyond the time when we, their children, are under their authority. An adult child may disagree with his father and mother and choose to act in ways they would not approve. Yet even when he does so, his unexceptionable and enduring obligation to honor them is still intact and binding. 
Unlike the feeling of love which goes with the grain, the felt need to honor is not altogether congenial. For honor, unlike love, implies distance, inequality, looking up to another as superior, with respect, reverence, and even a touch of fear. In this regard, honor is exactly like what is owed to a god, for it is rooted in the feeling of awe. In the, the, link, the link is later made explicit. When the Lord proclaims his central teaching about holiness, the injunction regarding proper disposition toward father and mother is renewed, revised, and placed in remarkable company. You have the passage on the back. It's from Leviticus 19. Ye shall be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. Ye shall fear, revere each man his mother and his father, and ye shall keep my Sabbaths, I the Lord your God. Fear, reverence, and awe are of course precisely the disposition that is appropriate toward the Lord himself. It was fear and reverence of the Lord for which Abraham was tested and praised in the binding of Isaac on Mount Moriah. Moreover, the command to fear, revere mother and father is now clearly coordinated with the command to observe God's Sabbath, making explicit the link between the two positive commandments, injunctions. What then links the honoring of father and mother to Sabbath keeping and to being holy? The teaching about father and mother comes right on the heels of the reason offered for sanctifying the Sabbath day. God's creation of the world and his subsequent setting apart and hallowing of time beyond work and motion. It thus extends our attention to origins and creation, now in the form of human generating. God may have created the world and the whole human race, but you, 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 you owe your own existence to your parents, who are, to say the least, co-partners, equally with each other, equally with God, in your coming to be. For this gift of life, and one may pointedly add, for not aborting you or electing to contraceive the possibility of your existence, you are beholden to honor them in gratitude. Gratitude toward parents is owed not only for birth and existence, but also for nurture, for rearing, and especially for initiation into a way of life that is informed by the disposition to gratitude and reverence. The way of this initiation is itself a source of awe. For our parents not only teach us explicitly and directly regarding God, his covenant, and his commandments. In their devotion to our being and well-being, given us not because we merited, they are also the embodiment of, and our first encounter with, the gracious beneficence of the world and of its bountiful source. Filial honor and respect are not only fitting and owed, they are also necessary to the parental work, whose success depends on authority and command. Exercising their benevolent power by invoking praise or blame, reward or punishment in response to righteous or wayward conduct, yet forgiving error and fault and remaining faithful to their children, parents embody and model the awesome, demanding, yet benevolent and gracious authority that characterizes the Lord God of Israel. In response on the side of the child, filial piety expressed toward father and mother is the cradle of awe, fear, and reverence, and eventually love of the Lord. 
even when we no longer need their guidance, we owe them the honor due to their office. So the injunction to honor father and mother is fitting and useful. But why has it such prominence in the Decalogue? And why, paired with the Sabbath, is it at the heart of God's new way and the summons to holiness? On the assumption that God reserves his most important teachings to address those aspects of human life most in need of correction, we need to remind ourselves of the problems this injunction is meant to address. The dark and tragic troubles that lurk within the human household and that absent biblical instruction imperil all decent ways of life. I refer to the iniquities of incest and patricide. The Bible's first and only previous mention of father and mother is found First and only previous mention of father and mother together in the Bible to this point is inserted in the, in the Garden of Eden story after the man seeing and desiring the newly created woman expostulates, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And then he names her as if she were but a missing portion of himself. She shall be called woman because from man she was taken. At this point, interrupting the narrative, the text interjects, quote, Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves unto his woman, that they may become one. No, that, that, that's earlier. Do I have it wrong? Okay. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves unto his woman that they may become as one flesh. Many commentators have seen here the ground of a biblical teaching about monogamous marriage. But in my view, the context suggests something darker. The inserted exhortation comes right after a speech implying that love and desire, including especially male sexual desire, is primarily love and desire of one's own. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Leaving your father and mother in order to become as one flesh with an outside woman serves as a moral gloss not on monogamy, but on the sexual love of your own flesh, which, strictly speaking, is the formula of incest. The danger of incest, destroyer of the distance between parent and child, is tied to a second threat, resentment of and rebellion against parental paternal authority, up to and including murder. The Bible's first story about the relation between fathers and sons, the story of Noah's drunkenness, is in fact a tale involving at least metaphorical patricide told as the immediate sequel to the establishment of the Lord's first covenant, that one with all humanity, the story serves as a crucial foil for the teaching about family life that God now at Sinai means to establish in the world. It didn't come all by itself. Remember, Noah has just received the first new law comprising the basis for civil society away from the anarchic state of nature that was the antediluvian world. At its center is the permission to kill and eat animals, but in exchange an obligation to avenge human bloodshed, an obligation that is said to turn on the fact 
that man alone among the animals is godlike. Quote, whosoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God was man made. And it concludes with the command to procreate and perpetuate the new world order. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, swarm through the earth, and hold sway over it. We look to the sequel to see how well this creature, made in God's image, fares under the new covenant. And the result is not cheering. Noah plants a vineyard, gets blind drunk, and lies uncovered in his tent, stripped not only of his fatherly authority, but even of his upright humanity. There he is seen in his shame by Ham, his hot-headed son, who goes outside and publicizes his discovery, celebrating his father's unfathering of himself. Ham's brothers, Shem and Japheth, enter the tent walking backward, covering their father's nakedness without witnessing or participating in it. When Noah awakens, he curses Canaan, son of Ham, but calls forth a blessing on the Lord God of Shem, the son whose pious action restored him to his fatherly dignity and authority. In explicating the story elsewhere, I have suggested that it is intended to show how rebellion, incest, and patricidal impulses lurk in the bosom of the natural, that is to say, the uninstructed human family. These dangers must be addressed if a way of life is to be successfully transmitted, especially a way of life founded on reverence for the Lord in whose image, as Noah and the human race have just discovered, we human beings are made. Yet the impulse to honor your father and mother does not come easily to every human heart. Some sons, however, appear to get it right, even without instruction. Shem, who restores his father's paternal standing, seems to have divined the need for awe and reverence for his father as a pathway to and a manifestation of the holy. And Shem's merit, it turns out, is visited upon his descendants. He becomes the ancestor of Avraham, founder of God's new way. Ham, on the other hand, is the ancestor of the Canaanites and the Egyptians, whose abominable sexual practices will be the explicit target of the laws of sexual purity, Leviticus 18, that are central to Israel's mission to become a holy nation. It is, in fact, at the end of that list of forbidden deeds, each prescribed as an iniquitous uncovering of nakedness, that the Lord pronounces the connection that we mentioned earlier among the call to holiness, awe and reverence for mother and father, and the observance of the Sabbath. Summing up this part, there's a short coda. The injunction to honor father and mother constitutes a teaching not only about gratitude, creatureliness, and the importance of parental authority. It insists on sacred distance, respect, and reverence, precisely to produce holiness, kedusha, in that all too intimate nest of humanity that often becomes instead a den of iniquity and a seedbed of tragedy. In Sabbath observance, a correction is offered against the especially Egyptian penchant for human mastery and pride that culminates in despotism and slavery. In honoring father and mother, a correction is offered against the unrestrained, especially Canaanite penchant for sexual unrestraint, including incest, that washes out all distinctions and lets loose a wildness incompatible with the created order 
and with living under the call to be a holy people. Adherence to these two teachings offers us the best chance for vindicating the high hopes the world carries for the creature who is blessed to bear the likeness of divinity. The connection between the Decalogue's two positive injunctions and between both of them and the goal of holiness shed light on the vexed questions of the universality versus the particularity of God's teaching to Israel and of Israel's special standing among the nations. Our interpretation implies that the call to holiness, although made only or first to the people of Israel, seeks to produce on earth a perfection not just of one people, but of human beings as such. This is perhaps already implicit in the Israelites' call to become a kingdom of priests, whether as example or as minister to the other peoples of the world. The universality becomes explicit with the reason for Sabbath remembrance and sanctification as the Israelites are summoned to adopt a godlike perspective on the nature of time and the relation between motion and rest. All human beings can appreciate and imitate the divine activities of creating and hallowing. Why? Because we are all equally related to the Lord, whose divine image and likeness each one of us bears. Yet paradoxically, we are immediately reminded that universality, like holiness, requires remaining true to the necessary particularities of our embodied existence. For what could be further from universality than the utterly contingent and non-interchangeable relationship that each person has to his singular father and mother? True, the parent-child relationship bears certain deep similarities to the relationship between the biblical God and any human being. But no one lives with universal or generic father and mother, only with his own very particular ones. A person shows reverence for fatherhood and motherhood as such, only by showing reverence for his own father and mother. Beware a universalist who has contempt for the particulars. Beware the lover of all humanity or of holiness who does not honor his own father and mother. For it turns out to be all but impossible to love your neighbors as yourself if you treat lightly your most immediate neighbors, those who are both, both, both most emphatically your own and most able to guide you to your full humanity. The case for a parochial community that bears a universal way, hence the case for the distinctive nation of Israel, follows directly from these considerations. A short closing section on the second table, Moral Principles for Neighbors. When we move to consider the statements of the so-called second table, we find ourselves on more familiar legal and moral ground. Murder, adultery, and theft are outlawed by virtually all civilized peoples. These legal prohibitions are not only the necessary condition of civil peace. They erect important boundaries not to be violated between what is mine and what is thine, life, wife, property, and reputation. Because they stand to reason, and because they were established already in the ancient Near East, they need neither explanations nor promises of punishment or reward for violation or compliance. Yet the Decalogue is not a legal code and goes beyond existing law. Formulated in absolute terms, the lapidary two-word Hebrew-style 
sets these statements forth as eternal and absolute moral principles. In addition, packaged within the God-spoken preamble to the specific covenant with Israel, the principles acquire elevated standing as sacred teaching, ordained by a divine lawgiver and resting on ontological ground firmer than mere human agreement or any utilitarian calculation about how this is good for peace and safety. Thou shalt not commit murder. Thou shalt not, thou, sorry, thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his servant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. The first three absolutes defend the foundational rather than the highest human goods. Life without which nothing else is possible. Marital fidelity and clarity about paternity without which family stability and responsible parenthood are very difficult. And property without which one's chance for living well or even making a living is severely compromised. Further specification of these principles must and will be given later when the mishpatim are pronounced. The prescription of bearing false witness carries a moral message that goes beyond its clear importance in, mo in judicial matters. At stake are not only your neighbor's freedom, property, and reputation, but the character of communal life and the proper uses of the godlike powers of speech and reason. Echoing the earlier prohibition on taking the Lord's name in vain, this injunction takes aim at a deed of wrongful speech, speech that is in vain light, vain and empty of truth. To speak falsely is to pervert the power of reasoned speech and to insult the divine original, whose reasoned speech is the source of the created order and the model of which we are the image. If most of the prohibitions in the second table are familiar, the Decalogue concludes with a surprising turn by focusing not on an overt action, but on an internal condition of the harder soul, a species of ardent desire or yearning. The uniqueness of this proscription of coveting is suggested both by its greater length and by its spelling out of the seven things belonging to your neighbor that you not only must not steal, but must not even long for. What is this doing at the close of the Decalogue? As a practical matter, a prohibition against covetous thoughts and desires builds a fence against the other forbidden deeds. For if you do not covet the things that are your neighbor's, you will be less likely to steal, commit adultery, or even murder, and you will be less tempted to make your neighbor suffer harm or loss by bearing false witness against him. But beyond such practical considerations, the final injunction causes us to reflect about the meaning of possession and about the nature of desire and neighborhood. A man who covets what is his neighbor suffers, whether he knows it or not, from multiple deformations of his own desire. Not content with his own portion of goodly things, he is incapable of seeing them in their true light as means to, and participants in, a higher way of life. Moreover, some of the same items occur on both the list of seven partakers in Sabbath rest and in the list of the seven covetables, as if to indicate the mistaken direction of the coveter's desire. His heart is set on the possessions of another. Why? Because he fails to realize that the things that matter most are not 
the unshareable things, but the things that we and our neighbors have in common. Knowledge of the Lord and what he requires of us. Participation in his grace and the bounty of creation. And the opportunity to live a life of blessing and holiness, despite our frailty and penchant for error and iniquity. Our neighbor's aspiration to and possession of these goods, these latter goods, these shareable goods, in no way interfere with our chances to attain them. On the contrary, to live among neighbors who yearn for the shareable goods is to live in a true community in which each and all can be lifted up in the pursuit and practice of holiness. Such a polity, even if only as an object of aspiration, is a veritable light unto the nations. Thank you. We have time for questions, Rabbi. Please, please start. To pick up on the uh, last few words of your presentation, it was extraordinarily aspirational in the sense of presenting the Decalogue as a universal set of principles for all of mankind. So the smaller question I have is, is this what you mean by humanistic? Since you didn't talk about that term, and my association with humanistic is godless or atheist or whatever. But the larger question uh, that I asked is how do you reconcile your presentation with the rabbinic tradition of the Noahide laws? These are the universal laws given to all of mankind and don't include the Sabbath, honoring your parents, and so forth. Was the question audible? It's a really wonderful, wonderful, wonderful set of questions. Um, by humanistic, um, I did not mean godless, but I meant um, the kind of God-informed politics that in fact is, celebrates the highest human possibilities. In other words, that particularly if I suggest there really are two possibilities. There's the way of Egypt, which is either nature worship or the worship of the mastery of nature. And Egypt has both strands sort of combined. And I suggest that both of those things wind up leading to iniquity and despotism and the falling short. If these are really the two alternatives, then human beings, or at least all human beings, can flourish only under this particular dispensation. And therefore, the people in America who would say, um, if you want a human po humanistic politics, you have to leave God out of it, they've got it exactly backwards. That if you really want a truly humanistic politics in which there is full regard for human dignity and the celebration of human possibility and it's lifting up, you can't do without the teaching like this. That would be the, the, the first clause. Second question is why um, has to do with the relation between the covenant with Israel and the covenant with Noah, which was indeed made with all humankind. Noah was in a way the new Adam. Uh, God started over with Noah, who was born into a world that had known mortality. Maybe things wouldn't go as badly as they did the first time. Um, and within a few chapters, uh, um, the command to disperse and fill the earth was countermanded in the all-mankind-united project to remake themselves in Babel. And it's at that point that God says, 
we're going to have separation of the peoples and we are going to find one people. I'm going to get a toehold in this world with one particular people. And fortunately, when, uh, after he tried, the text doesn't say this, but Abraham is at least the one we know when given the invitation took it. That's why he's in the book. Um, does that mean when God starts with Abraham, he's forgot the other peoples of the world? No, because Abraham is in a way, in Abraham the other nations of the world are to be blessed. God starts on a parochial way, I still think, for a certain kind of ultimate universal purpose. To be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's, it's opaque, it doesn't. Um, but for various reasons, um, the universal way which was embarked on with Noah is abandoned. And the way toward universality is to be, is to, is to be pursued through particularity that um, uh, one cannot somehow aim early and completely at a full teaching. Sufficient under the day to begin with is to have a people who live under this dispensation, who bear witness to it, who provide a kind of model, etc. Um, uh, and in one of the parts of the talk, it might have gone pretty fast, I was wrestling with this question of universality and parochialism. The complaint against the Jews is um, uh, they care uh, for the Jews only. Or that, that they're an inward-looking and parochial people. And it's Christianity who has universalized uh, the, the biblical teaching um, by abrogating those laws which are especially incumbent on uh, the descendants of, of Abraham. You abrogate the dietary laws and other things in order to be able to have a universal teaching which does not dispend, depend on the lines of descent. But I want to suggest that um, there is universality carried in the particularism, in the parochialism here. Partly in the teaching on the Sabbath, in which, as the old commercials for Levy's rye breads, you don't have to be Jewish to understand the justification for the Sabbath. Um, and uh, the world would be a better place if everybody paid attention. Um, at the same time, we are not yet ready for the abandonment of living in communities where uh, the attachments to your own make it possible to put into practice in a communal, familial, communal, and uh, it was at that time to be hoped um, political way what it means to live under this kind of law. So um, I want to say the ultimate purposes are universal. The means are particular. The goal hasn't been sacrificed. And the, the attempt to work universally with all humankind by itself didn't work. God had to do something new um, because you saw what you see in the first generation. I mean, here is they've been rescued from the flood. Noah has commanded the, the, the whole um, microcosmic order of terrestrial life and avian life. And the rainbow is shining and they have this wonderful dispensation. And in... In the next verses, you got a son who commits metaphorical patricide without disturbing a, and castration. He didn't touch him, but he unfought. No unfathered himself, and Ham said, Great. And um, Schlacht. How are you going to perpetuate something from one generation to the next unless you teach people to respect not fatherhood or motherhood in general, but your particular incarnation of it? That's why. 
that's why the, the honor your father and mother, it seems to me, echoes that particular problem that is shine, that's shown forth in the Noahide law. I, I know the rabbis have deduced additional things beyond what I see in the text of Genesis 9. Um, they're geniuses. I don't see where it comes from. All this, all this stuff about the family um, from, from the Noahide call, which doesn't say a word. I mean, the explicit things that are said from God to Noah uh, in, in the seven verses at the beginning of the doesn't say anything about father and mother. It simply talks about um, the blood which is the life and avenging uh, uh, the shedding of human blood, which means that there's another consideration left out of that universal teaching, which the Torah the Torah in making honor your father and mother absolutely central, in the, not only in the Decalogue, but in the Holiness Code, uh, is in a way trying to rectify a universal human pension. We, we live under the dispensation for so long, we don't realize what a huge problem, and you can see in a certain way in the unraveling of the culture, once the problem is coming to show itself back. Please. Okay. Do, you, do you present this material um, let me read you a paragraph I skipped because this wasn't such an audience. I've given this to uh, mixed <laughs> mixed audiences. <laughs> Um, this is at the end of that discussion of, of universal in particular. From the Lords of the Decalogue's perspective, indeed, the contingency and parochial character of our existence is not a misfortune or a defect. To the contrary, in the Torah, it is an estimable blessing that we have bodies and live concrete and parochial lives. For it is only in and through our lived experiences, here and now, that we gain full access what is universally true, good, and holy. And here is the... Unlike a later scriptural teaching, the Lord of the Decalogue does not exhort you to leave your father and mother and follow me. Instead, he celebrates the fact that grace comes locally and parochially into the life each one of us was given to live as well as we can, embedded in the covenantal community in which we have been blessed to be born. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm saying that I, I'm calling into question. I'm calling into question um, nervously um, the wisdom of the Christian subordination of these of the of the importance of these primary attachments. Now, it's true. It's certainly true that um, you know, the Torah itself would teach you should love uh, the the Torah will teach you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, right? Um, and you shouldn't love your father and mother most. Um, and there are competitions amongst these lovers, but um, there isn't that push in the direction of universality, which which leads one to forget and ignore the primary claims of beginning with father and mother and the household and the local community and radiating out from there. And it seems to me, um, 
I'm, I'm, I'm trying to defend that. I'm trying to defend that not as a Jew. I'm trying to defend that as someone who has been instructed by pondering this particular teaching for the foundate for the founding of a community that could govern itself and live righteously and aspiring to holiness. Right? And and it's you know that didn't start with a presupposition in favor of this. I was sort of I, I've been trying to educate myself by means of the text to see why right next to an injunction which has a universalist reason do you make the most contingent and parochial of relationships the foundation of your next God-loving obligation and then a few chapters later in the holiness code these two things together and they're the only two positive things in the Decalogue and they are it seems to me the genius of the they're really the genius uh, of the uh, uh, of, of, of the Jewish people's self-understanding. Do, do you have any advice to non-Jews as to how to implement this, this concept in, in their own mind? Um, I, I don't. I don't. I don't really give advice. I expound the text. They can draw the conclusions. Okay. They should draw the conclusions that they would like to draw. Doctor Astro, and then. Well, um, I mean, you know, uh, Jews, uh, especially in the United States, and not only Jews, um, should uh, be deeply grateful for the, the fact that we have a separation of church and state, uh, that we have religious freedom and religious toleration. Going back very far, um, George Washington's letter to the Hebrew congregation of Newport, Rhode Island is one of the very early and most beautiful uh, statements of all of this. Um, and uh, theocracy, uh, especially certain kinds of theocracy, can be a problem. All you have to do is read the newspapers. Um, uh, question is whether the separation of church and state and whether the founders are indifferent to whether the people in their social, cultural, and private life um, are God-fearing or not. Uh, in other words, the, the, um, the, the political principles, the political liberal principles were meant in fact to uh, protect private liberty, including liberty of worship, from the rule of prince and prelate. Um, but the, and Jefferson, Jefferson was a deist, and there were several, but lots of people, including Washington and the Farewell Address is another place, were very concerned about the status of religion in the populace at all. 
the individual states of the Union. Many of them had established churches until uh, the 14th Amendment incorporated the, the First Amendment and the, the teachings, uh, the, the teachings about the state. Um, I, I think it's an interesting, I mean, I, I, I sense what's behind the question. Uh, and I think it's an interesting question today. Um, I'll, I'll make it a provocative answer to what is. Should American Jews today be more nervous about the potential anti Semitism of their serious Christian neighbors, some of whom would like to see our polity become more explicitly friendly to Christianity in public, at least less hostile? then we should be bothered by our um, fellow Jews who are pagans. This is, not, this is not as a matter of law, but as a matter of culture. And I, and I don't mean that, I don't mean it by putting the question forcefully that I know the answer. But um, as, as people who have suffered everywhere from the intrusion of state upon religion, we are skittish when we hear people talk about these things. But um, the alternative to this in modern America seems to be a running down. The people who care about religion are circling the wagons, and the question is, what's the larger state of the culture and where it's going? The Canaanites and the Egyptians didn't die. They're all over the place. Those are, those are, permanent, those are, those are permanent human alternatives. We have time for one more? Here, this gentleman in front, please. very nice. It's, it's, it's very nice because um, I mean, one can make the thing even more complicated. I don't have the, the text absolutely clearly in mind. But um, the end of chapter 19, I think, finishes by saying, and he said, doesn't it? I mean, it's, there's a certain ambiguity as to who's speaking and what's being said. And in fact, um, if you go to the end, um, at, at, at the end of the Decalogue, um, this is again absolutely marvelous. The, peop the people saw the thunder. 
And you've got this, I mean, on the one hand, there's all this pyrotechnics to make a big impression. On the other hand, they're overawed, and the senses are so overawed, it's not clear they heard anything. They say, you speak to us, Moses. They stood afar off. And it's only at that point that God sort of adds, oh, by the way, the people are far off. I thought maybe this, this speech would be somehow connected. Maybe we should have a, a little altar where you should come, but make it out of, out of clay and not out of stone. And don't forget, there shouldn't be any exposure of nakedness, presumably, as they do in the other places. So there's, there's a kind of... Uh, it's not clear what the people have heard, if they've heard anything. I mean, that, that fills out this thought very nicely. Thank you very much for that.